Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today on this, the first episode of Draw Your Dice. I am, I've said, if you're, you know, if you're on the Patreon or Kofi that I do or do not will have, uh, you can listen to the full episode, (laughs) the full episode of, uh unedited audio of our little meetup today but thank you for joining us today today i am with someone who has made a very beautiful game i just got done reading the other day called no stone unturned he has started a little youtube project of creating his next game for zine quest in 2021 i would like everyone here to welcome mr adam bell (sighs) (laughs) say hi to the people adam hey yeah i'm adam bell i as you heard, I've made games and videos. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you, just so the folks at home can get to know you just a tiny bit, why don't you give us like a brief walk of life up to being interested in game design and then whatever that spark was for game design? Because I like people to know that game designers are more than just game designers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to say that I'm a game designer among other things because it's a hobby at this point in my life. Maybe eventually it'll be more than that. But yeah, I didn't do really any game design in tabletop RPGs until like a year and a half ago, two years ago maybe. So I've been playing board games since sometime in college. I was really bored with college as a thing and wasn't interested in my major anymore, but the sunk cost of 
years of tuition. So I, I needed something to do with my brain that wasn't just going to class and hating it. Uh, so I got into board games and played a lot of those. Once I got out of college, made a lot of friends through that. Started going to game conventions, and at some point in there, I bought. I had played some D anD D, but like wasn't super in love with it. At some point, I had bought some other indie games. I forget what it might have been. Blades in the Dark actually was the first one that I had bought, um, and I thought that was cool. And then I played around with like designing board games because that was still you know, the, what I knew the most and I enjoy doing that, but it's a lot more work. It's, it's not an easy hobby. I think to design a board game because there's so much Mm -hmm. more that has to go into like making a balanced game. There's a lot of, there's a lot of balance and then it's a lot less rewarding. I would say because it's a lot more, it's a lot more of a corporate space board games. Like you either have to (laughs) make your eyes bleed doing a Kickstarter and somehow get successful (laughs) Or, like, sell all the rights to the game away to some publisher and then barely barely make any money. So, like, what's the point? Um, Yeah, I have to wrestle with all those intellectual uh, property (laughs) deals and things like that. Yeah, there's there's just a lot more to it. Whereas I started getting into tabletop role-playing game design through... I found Itch at some point, and then I heard about the the sad mech jam game and started reading a bunch of those. I feel like that was probably a big moment in the itch side of, of indie dev. So I obviously didn't make anything for that, but I was reading those games and I was like, there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening here. And then I think the next game jam I saw was, it was something called the wizard jam. So I just made a silly little like party game about wizards. And then that was it. About a month later, I started working on this and turned. That's awesome. That's that's really cool. I really like this little journey of I think that's a thing for a lot of people I talk to about like, what when did your first game happen? Oh, around college or so. Like some people have been into it since high school or even younger cuz their, you know, their dad or their mom was a, you know, D&D second edition player or something to that effect, right? So, I love that sort of Blades in the Dark. Blades in the Dark I think for me was also one of the first games beyond D and D, like I played D and D first, is like eh, this is fine, and everyone like that I know is playing it. But I, I think there's there are other things out there. Like I've always been a big proponent for non mainstream. I guess I'm a little punk on the inside when it comes <laughs> to like games, and uh, I'm just like there has to be something more like in its own lane that's just like cool and you know hip for me. And there is, turns out. There is. There's a a lot of it. You know, that could be a whole podcast episode in of itself of how people, there's so many games, everyone. Just just go support people and find the (laughs) thing that really tells the story you want to tell. So now that we know a little bit more about Adam, we'll get into the meat of this whole show. We're going to talk about, if this is your first time listening, we kind of do a mini design commentary on a game that our guest has ideally published, though I don't want to ever make it seem that I don't want new designers on here too, just because because we'll also be talking about games that Adam is currently wrestling with or working on currently. But we're going to talk about some published games and see what sort of that in-review 
looks like for Adam. So Adam's selected game is No Stone Untouched, which I had I had an absolute blast reading. I loved pretty much everything about and when I say pretty much, I don't mean like there is something I hate it. That's not what I mean. <laughs> Page I just mean 33, like, no go. Yeah, <laughs> that's a no-go. <laughs> no, I I really enjoyed reading it. I think it has some really smart ideas. I think this this is a game I would recommend to people as their first role-playing game. Oh, wow. I think, no, seriously, because I think the systems are, are simple enough that, and that it's, it starts from a place of that everyone is creative at the table, where I think one of the fallacies with traditional D and D, I, you know, I, I use that as, cause it's sort of the first stepping stone for a lot of people into the, into the hobby. You know, it creates the dichotomy between GM and player and that the GM is the creative mastermind, whereas all the players are just kind of like watching your novel unfold. And I <laughs> that's the reason I was trying to find other games. What I love and we'll get it. We'll certainly get, you know, what, let's just let's just do it because I don't want to spoil too much before we get there. So I figured that we would, you know, kind of just run down the book in a kind of semi quick format. I made a couple of notes on on different chapters here. But I think you would tell it best. What is No Stone Unturned about? So it's a game about basically long after some sort of societal collapse, which you can or cannot define. It's up to you. The societies are starting to pick up the pieces, but the world is kind of in shambles. So it's it's sort of post-apocalyptic, but I want it to be – I distinctly want it to be like far after the apocalypse. So you're not dealing with like actively – the world is still on fire. Like you're, you're starting mm-hmm. to, to piece it back together and you are building up like as, as a table, you define a settlement and like build out this map of the world. And then you are going out on basically adventures, like standard RPG adventure style thing into different locations. But as players, the game is really asking you to pay attention to your effect on those places because you're not the only people in the world. You're not the only creatures in the world. And so you should keep track of like what what you're doing and how that affects what already lives there or how that affects like if some of the world is still unstable from whatever disaster. So it's about that cycle of like the effects of exploration on both the world and then on the characters because it encourages introspection and stuff like that too. I I think that's absolutely beautiful. I think that's one of the niche pieces that really separates the game from other, what I want to say, adventure models, I guess, in that your effect, I don't think a lot of people explore the effect you have on, and I know when we say environment here, it's more than just like the trees, earth, and rock. It's also the inhabitants that live there. It's the ecosystem that's there. The game touches on that in the text uh, a little bit more profoundly. But I I really think that it's just such an interesting take on the adventure genre and is really intimate. It just really lets you elaborate on those sort of smaller, more emotional moments. And there could be large heroic moments, I'm sure, in this game. But I think that the game is really geared towards that. I mean, there's, I believe it's reflection later on in downtime where you're just really having an introspection with yourself about your moods and your aspects and just, you know, what did we do today? And and how did we either help or hurt the world. And that's, you know, I think that game says a lot about what we're doing to our current 
world as well. And I think that might be something that you are, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's <laughs> something that your game is saying, right? Like what, what are we doing right now to our planet? Yeah. A lot of bad stuff, huh? Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> what we're whew! doing. <laughs> Again, a, a whole of, nother, whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of historical exploration did not care about their effects. Uh, of course, unfortunately. Yeah. I was I was fiddling with an idea about playing adventure archaeologists, and when I was doing some research, I, I definitely saw like early early archaeologists did not care about how they they just wanted the riches, the gold, the treasure, so that they could make fame for themselves. They didn't care how they busted up a pyramid or destroyed a tomb, and we'll never know what was in that place because of that. We'll never right. know what that looked like or what could answer questions about our own civilization moving forward. Yeah, and more often than not, they still have that stuff. They're just holding yeah. on to it. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, yeah. Games, games, games. Hey, everyone at home, your game always says something. You always have it say something whether you mean to or not. So I think it's important to declare that this game says something, and your game probably will too. So the first part of the book kind of goes over creation or the starting steps of the game. It's kind of broken up into the classic introduction of what the game is about, safety tools, which, you know, is the standard line and veil things. I mean, for the for the people at home, if you're not familiar with safety tools, please, please, please look them up. They're really I think they're really important moving forward in the role playing industry. I mean, there are, I have friends in in different theater companies across the country that are really exploring what it means to have consent when rehearsing, when practicing, and even performing on stage, and really taking people's emotional health into account when it comes to those things, spiritual and emotional health. And then we kind of move into the world building. So, my the first thing I really really loved about your version of having everyone at the table sort of be, you call them arbiters in the game, but essentially GMs to, to the effect of everyone gets to say something that's very truthful about the world in this step. And I think my favorite part is making up touchstones. Like everyone says like a pop culture reference. And I think more games need to state how to approach doing touchstones and how to establish tone for a game, you know, saying something like, you know, this kind of feels like the Avengers. So we're going to be superheroes, powers, fighting for the forces of good to some extent. Maybe we have some, you know, infighting amongst our group because we have differing opinions, but overall it's an epic story, right? Or this game feels like Indiana Jones. We are in the jungle. We are risking our lives against booby traps and harrowing escapes. So I think I think touchstones are really awesome. Yeah, that- Um and that kind of stuff like really helps get the table on the same page so you can push farther or closer to that. So if you mm-hmm. have established one of the, one of my favorite play tests of this a, a while back, we established at the beginning that it, it was very much a cartoon. And so that <laughs> just like opens up just having that everybody agreeing that it's a cartoon opened up so many funny little scenes and stuff that we could have that we could plant in like just you don't have to follow the logic of a realistic story if you establish your cartoon in the beginning, but if you don't establish that and somebody starts saying something like, Oh, um, actually we get a shot where we just zoom in to the folds of your brain. And there's a little, (laughs) there's a little you in there trying to figure it out. Everybody'd be like, what are you talking about? But if you're establishing (laughs) that like the tone is something where that's possible, then 
I just feel like it, it has helped me a lot because you don't want one player to be like, oh, we're doing a grim dark adventure where uh, it's everything's hard, <laughs> and the other person's like, I just want to hang out and <laughs> talk about goofy wanna, stuff. <laughs> yeah, I want to pet this rabbit. Let me right. pet the rabbit, dude. <laughs> then the rabbit bites your head off. That's a reference for anyone that might get that reference. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I found it. <laughs> So, yeah, I, yeah, talk to me about sort of the, I guess, process of coming up with the, what do I want to say? I think I, in my notes, I said like the abstract abstraction of world building. What was kind of the, I know I, know, I have the ludography in front of me, but <laughs> I want you to kind of talk about your inspirations for creating this world building slash character creation flow, if you will, the session zero flow. So one of the reasons that I put this as such a such a methodical there are, what is it like eight nine ten steps mm-hmm. nine steps mm-hmm. of creating a world in this game and the the reason I wanted to do that is to encourage a certain type of collaboration between players there often there have been games of like other gmless games that go great like they don't have very structured anything it's just like oh talk about the world and then start playing in it, which can work. But I have had a few times where it didn't work either because, you know, some people didn't want to speak up or yeah, just things like it's, it's hard to put your ideas forth whenever somebody else is bringing forth an idea and you're like, Oh, well mine might interfere with that. I'll just be quiet. And so you kind of end up with this, with this cooperative approach to making a world that maybe wanders down some of the, more interesting ideas that you don't speak. So I wanted to make something more collaborative where everybody's putting things into a pile and then Mm -hmm. that pile becomes something like new and better. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like, there are a lot of bits, there are a lot of bits where you're taking turns doing things. So which I took a lot of this from other games, like the best part of, of the step one from another game. I, I tried to find a place like, um, Step five is the create scarcities and abundances, which is directly from the quiet year, uh, mm-hmm. which is a mm-hmm. great game. Everybody should play the quiet year. Uh, and that fits in here because it's like, it gives everybody a chance to define something that's important to the people that you're, that you're dealing mm-hmm. with. So yeah, it's kind of, kind of drawn from, from games like the quiet year, like I said, from kingdom by Ben Robbins and just a lot of other, just GM-less games where you are meant to play in one session. But mm-hmm. I wanted to collect all that into a big, kind of long process. <laughs> yeah. I No, I think it's amazing. And the, the, I think the biggest positive for Creation Sway, at least in, in my opinion, is that you have so many touch points for player buy-in. Like, you create so many ways for every player at the table to have something they are excited about finding. You know, there's there's different sections where you have to write. So the world building process kind of has you write in index cards. You lay them out on the table. 
You start with the settlements that you're trying to support as adventurers, and then you start building index cards about the greater world around you. Everyone gets two, and you get a certain truth, and you actually don't have to share those things right out the gate. They can sort of be fun little upside-down, flip-over discoveries, and your your player character knows rumors about those things. I just think that's so interesting that you get to be like, yeah, I've, you know, it's like that fun little secret. You're just trying to keep behind pressed lips and you're just like, I can't wait to tell you, but there's a big bear there. (laughs) And I just, I love games that aren't just like, you know, pick, pick your skill, pick your dice ability, pick your advance, starting advance, whatever. Those things don't, I don't think those things really say things about the world. And, you know, there's different people who have different player buy-ins that they love. But I, I think when, I don't know, I just think it's so much more evocative and powerful when you have something that is true to the world that you provided I think another game that does something very similar is Dungeon World in its sort of session zero where it uh, says, you know, if someone is a human, what does human civilization look like? And it's a little bit more loose in in how you deal with those things. But I just think the player buy-in is wicked strong, wicked, wicked strong. And the other, the secret about writing those, the two no card locations that you were talking Mm -hmm. about is I wanted to trick people into being GMs for a second and into seeing that like GM prep isn't that hard. Yes. Yes. I, that's what I picked up on too. I was like, this, this man is slowly training GMs. <laughs> They'll never know. I, it, I was like, and we'll get into this when we get into like the, the actual gameplay, but the, the splitting, like the splitting and the people have to be players and arbiter, like just, the splitting groups blew my mind. I was like, what a genius move. What a genius move. I love it so much. But we'll get, we'll get in that into a little bit. Let's talk about, let's kind of transition into character creation here. So you use about three dice. I didn't see anything about any other dice, but you use a D8, D6, and D4 as sort of the ranks of your moods, aspects, and skills. And then your character also has some sentiments attached to them. So kind of, I guess, what was your, what do I want to say, class influence or or character player creation influence for this? Like, it seems like it's a combination of a couple of things. So, yeah, the, the moods, each character is made up of, like you said, there's aspects, which is like a basic stat. Body, mind, and heart are the three mm-hmm. aspects. There are moods, and this is a fill-in-the-blank thing where you are asked, hey, what moods are your character? does your character like exist in while they're out on an adventure? This obviously is not their entire emotional canvas, but it is what they, what they were usually feeling when they're on an adventure. And you leave some of those blank during character creation in case you don't get it right. If you're in a situation, you're like, actually, I'm angry, and I didn't think I was going to be angry. You can, <laughs> you can fill that in. Yeah. But so each of the moods and then the aspects are assigned to a D4, D6, and D8. And that's the die that you're going to roll whenever you're acting with that mood or aspect. And the, the, the mood thing itself is definitely entirely inspired by The Veil by Fraser Simons. That is a game about emotions. Like you have six stats in that game and it's just like six base emotions. And it's all it's all the same and, you know, for each character, it's all, I think it's like mad, joyful, 
go look it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I kind of I liked that, but it did. It always felt a little bit restrictive. So I wanted to be a fill in the blank thing because for one, if somebody rolls up and is like, "Okay, my character is angry," they're quiet. Is that a mood? That's a mood. Sure, and they're sure. <laughs> joyful. That kind of like paints a picture of somebody that is. Like those are the three things that this person's doing. They're either mad about something, they're empty headed, or they're they're having a blast. Like, and where am I? What am I talking about? We are. We are. No, no. no. So I I just wanted to kind. Of, I also want to know, like. So you said the veil was sort of the the base for moods here, and sort of the relative character creation system here. I really i think that having a fill in character creation is really exploratory for this is what this is one of the things why i said this was a great new player game because everyone at the table has the ability to kind of guide what your abilities are give input right because i think you know if we think about D&D for for a second and i will I, this is episode 1 i have no extreme love for D&D, I will say that. <laughs> I want my taste to be present to everyone who listens to this show. Yeah, I'm with you uh, <laughs> But I, th- I think one of the fallacies with D&D for new players, just because it's mainstream, it is not an easy game to learn. And it's also not an easy game to teach a new player, too, because let's just... Let's just talk about ability scores for like one side tangent thing for a second. Ability scores translate to ability modifiers, and you have to know the ranges for those things. So when you say my ability score is 18, you're never using that 18 for anything. It just denotes what you're like. It's just there's so many layers to getting to understand what your character is about that I think it creates a really big stopgap for people because i i've tried to get new people into games where they are you know it's just such a big book there's so many rules and then i have to teach them at the table which can be sort of a slow jog for maybe more veteran players who are sitting at the table that may be like you know we wanted them to join but we're not getting a lot done and then there's this like subtle frustration that's kind of like brewing at the table what i love about your system is that someone can just kind of haphazardly go, okay, these are my three moods. Or they can be like, you know, I was thinking about this concept from another game or a show. How can we how can we make that work here? What words do we need to put on this paper to, to make that work? So I think that the system you've built for character creation, keeping it simple to like this is a rank one, two, and three skill that you have or a rank one, two, and three mood or aspect that you have. And I think that stuff is uh, really powerful for approachability and accessibility. We talked about this in the Brain Trust. Brain Trust. If you don't know what the Brain Trust is, go listen to the podcast. They're sponsoring this episode. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah the I other, think you did it. I guess real quick, the other the other things on the character sheet are skills, which is another fill in the blank. Just write yeah. down three things that you're good at, and it'll mm-hmm. help you on your dice rolls. And oh, then yeah, yeah. sentiments is the last thing, which are three things that your character holds dear. So that might mm-hmm. be you might, and this is another completely fill in the blank thing, catching on uh, a trend yeah. with this character sheet. The sentiments could be like, "Oh, I have a great relationship with my mom," or. My, I have a rake that I carry around and I like it a lot. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it's just like three things that that your character really cares about, and those mm-hmm. first from a design standpoint, those are inspired by a game called Never Tell Me the Odds by I mm-hmm. this up, I forgot by David Somerville. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a it's like a one shot space scoundrel game where you don't have stats or anything. You're always flipping a coin, but your character has six things that they care about from six specific categories. Mm-hmm. So that was a cool game. And I was like, that's great tech to put in yeah. a role playing game. Cause you can then later when you're playing, no stone unturned risk those. You'd be like, I really need to succeed this dice roll, but I'm whatever I'm doing internally to succeed in this might put at risk my relationship with my mom. Like she mm-hmm. doesn't want me doing oh. this dangerous stuff and it's going to be hard to look her in the eyes <laughs> or something like I, that. I started feeling feelings just now. <laughs> I saw my own mom. Whew. I love my mom, everyone. I really do. Uh, shout out to mom. Mom, if you're listening to this, I love the shit out of you. I swear. I should call more. Yeah, me me too. Yeah. yeah. Call your moms. Yeah, I I really love the fill in the blank stuff. And the I love that this I think the skills and the sentiments are the loosest, but also sort of the most powerful when it comes to player agency because you know some more traditional style rpgs kind of put you in a box of a character type you are the warrior you are the wizard you are the rogue these are your skills right you don't get Mm -hmm. to you don't get to break that lane but with this it says like you know i'm good at building fires i'm good at climbing things i'm good at swimming right like there's so many different avenues to create and there's like, I think the box of the game, cause I'm always a big fan of let boxes create limitations and thus creativity. I think the box of the game is that you're adventure explorers and that's the only box. As long as you operate with inside of that and the tones you've established for the game in the world building, I just think there's so many beautiful characters that, could come out of that that will be so unique to the next person at the table who may even have a very similar concept. I mean, if there's two people who want to be, you know, warrior lumberjacks, the thing, the sentiments that you have and the skills you bring to the table will differ you greatly. And you'll have two very different characters and having two barbarians at the table, right? Like two barbarians in D&D doing the exact same thing. You're not going to feel different from the guy. Awesome. Awesome. So let's get into, let's just touch base about sort of, this is a little bit more of the the meaty bits of, I think, game design is really hashing out the gameplay. I think a lot of the other stuff is sort of the artistic brushstrokes, but at some point we have to create the game loops that allow us to resolve conflicts in the game. So why don't you kind of, I know it's going to be a little skipping ahead in the gameplay section, but what is sort of the start for making the action roll? Because I think as me as a beginner designer, I, my brain always goes first to how do I make people roll dice and that work? Like how, how do I math here? And I know that it's a fairly simple system, but why don't you touch base a little bit on, on the action roll, the aspect and the, and the mood rolling of dies. Yeah. So the action role I have listed basically every, it, it looks, it probably looks intimidating to look at the action role steps in this game, mm-hmm. but that's cause I listed everything that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like every, basically every button on the, on the character sheet can be involved, but it's 
usually optional. Like you don't have to use mm. your skills, your sentiments every time, but it's listed there. So if you're ever looking at this game and you're like, there's too many steps to roll dice. I just want to roll dice. You just roll dice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the way it goes is first the player states their desired outcome. And then after that, the arbiters, which again, we haven't gotten into this quite yet, but the arbiters are anybody whose character is not involved in the active scene acts as an arbiter together. So you do GM work, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's another mm-hmm. way to trick people into being GMs <laughs> in this game. <laughs> so the arbiters are going to choose the aspect, so mind, body, or heart, and then state what's most at risk. So what's most at risk will either be the world or the character. So if you're doing something like trying to dodge somebody swinging a sword at you, the character's at risk. But if you're maybe trying to quickly scale a rock face that you don't know if it's crumbling or not, the world's probably at risk. Mm-hmm. And so depending on that, the world or character be at risk, being at risk, that determines whether... So the next step is you you roll, your, you roll the dice. You roll the mood die and the aspect die from those. Again, those are going to either be a D4, D6, or D8, and then you compare the number. So you subtract. And then going back to what's most at risk, if the world was most at risk and the mood die is higher, then the player wins. So you want your... If the world's most at risk, you want to be more in tune with like how you're feeling and how you're interacting with the world. So the mood die should be higher. But if the character's most at risk, you want like your instincts to kick in and the aspect needs to be higher to for the player to win. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and then depending on how... Depending on the difference between those two roles, so if it's one difference versus like four plus the, the numbers... Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that determines like just the the degree of effect and mm-hmm. the way effect works in this game is a little bit of tech taken from a game called the indie hack and that is itself i think a hack of the black hack which it's, it's, it's hacks all the way down um, we have a long family of the hacks <laughs> and the indie hack is by oh god hang on a second i have it on my shelf i should get it but there it is why can't i find it uh by slade stoller that's the one yes yeah so that is kind of a, a dungeon crawly game, but it has a very cool mechanic where basically the difference of your dice roll determines who gets to add details. Details with a capital D. It's like a game term. Mm-hmm. And there are three different types of details in both games because I this was very good and I just took it <laughs> – it really improved <laughs> my game. Whenever I, whenever I read the indie hack, it, No Stun Unturned was like a botched Powered by the Apocalypse thing. It was There was a whole horrible table, and I was looking for something <laughs> that mm-hmm. would be better. Um, so the details, there's hard details, soft details, and scene details, and you're granted a number of those based on the die roll. So if you mm-hmm. win as a player, you get to add hard or soft details. If the Arbiters win, they get to add Hard or soft details. And a hard detail can be anything that like fundamentally changes the scene. Basically anything that you have to write down is mm-hmm. a hard detail. So if that mm-hmm. rock face crumbles and falls, then like you would write down 
somewhere that like that cliff is has been pretty much destroyed. So that's a hard detail. Mm-hmm. Or if you're dodging the the sword and you don't the arbiters win, you probably get the hard detail stabbed, which is not good. You don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, soft details are just things that are that are well, they're softer. So. So just anything that, you know, you don't have to write it down. It's just like, oh, I made it to the top. So the soft detail mm-hmm. is I, I ascended the cliff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something that's kind of more temporary than Yeah, than just the, the moment-to-moment stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I found it interesting. I know it's not mentioned in the book, and I don't know if you've played it or read it, but the game Iron Sworn by Sean Tompkins. Whew, I just brain blasted there for a second. <laughs> it, it's very similar to his system about how he uses challenge dice and action dice. And in his game, he uses 2d10, which represent the challenge dice, and then an action die, which represents your character. You roll all three. If your action die, with some modifiers, is lower than both challenge dice, uh, that's a that's a bad bad move, a uh, bad outcome. If it's in between those numbers, it's a hit, partial hit. I don't remember what the specific term is. It's partial success. <laughs> and then on the move, and then if you s- rise above both of those challenge dice with your action dice, that is a like a great a great result. Uh, and I just found it really interesting for anyone listening. If I know Iron Sworn's kind of like tripping into the the sub mainstream as i like to call it like it's the indie culture that has hit the mainstream it's like blades in the dark iron sworn that sort of stuff but you've probably uh-huh. heard of iron sworn yeah. i haven't yeah i actually haven't read it yet because i'm bad at reading pdfs and don't have the physical but eventually i'll get that because that sounds really good everything yeah, i've heard about it sounds incredible it has really good. I think he has a really great understanding of, of prompts, like building tables for prompts and things. But mm. you know, that's that's another podcast. When I get Sean, if you're listening, you can you can come on <laughs> to the show. Please come on the show. Um, but just just to sort of get it under under people's brains about the the action role. So just so that we're all on the same page here, it's basically you're rolling two dice, your mood and your aspect, whatever ranks you've assigned to them. And like you said, if the world's at, at stake, we look for what the aspect die result versus the mood result is. And then for the character, it's the mood versus the aspect. The former being the one who needs to succeed to be in player control. Right. And, and then I think that's I think it's really cool. Yeah, and you're basically just wrestling for narrative control over yeah. what happens next. Yeah, it's it's really great. Again, it's 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 really simple. I think that it's really simple for people to get behind and teaches cuz I, I think a, a lot of times people just roll dice when they first start playing games and like they don't talk about what they want their character to do. They just want to hear the click clacks and see the numbers. <laughs> yeah. But, you get that uh, a lot playing playing like Blades in the Dark with yeah. people who've only played D&D. You're yes. Like, oh, yes. I need a roll, and then they chuck their dice, and it's like, wait, <laughs> position of position. You want position a double bar again? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah, exactly. It's I, again just a really great, really great game to get get people into. So, you know, we walked through the steps of action roll. I want to circle back to because I think it's an important piece of this game. Talk about the difference between being an arbiter and a player here. And I also want to talk about that splitting of the group in scenes that you kind of require it to some extent to make the quote unquote journey work. Right. So 
yeah, talk about the concept of, of splitting the group. I know we've already touched on that you wanted to train people, <laughs> right, to GM a little bit more because they're in short supply and there is a heavy demand. Yeah, talk about splitting the group and, and, and that. Yeah, so the like the basic flow of the game is once you've finished creating your characters and creating the world, you've got this like map on your table from all of the different index card locations that you made. Everybody collectively determines which one to go to, and then you flip it. Whoever wrote it gives a brief narration, and then yeah, as you're as you're saying, the game asks you to split into two groups. Which this is honestly, it's a purely mechanical choice to split into two groups, just so then mm-hmm. you have people who aren't involved in the scene and can arbit. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a verb. It's a verb. <laughs> I'll find it. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I ever used it as one. So yeah, they you, you split into two groups. So that way you get like two different sides of the story of this new location. And also that way you have people who can be like, yeah, you're messing around. Here's what's happening. Yeah. And, and it lets people, depending on how many people you have. So it works. This game works pretty well as a two player game because you just mm-hmm. split your two characters and then GM for mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And then once you reach, I usually say like once you reach a cliffhanger, just switch over to the other group mm-hmm. and, and switch mm-hmm. roles. And so you basically do that and then you make action roles until you find some narrative conclusion there and head yeah. back home mm-hmm. or whatever. You don't have to head back home. That's up to you. <laughs> I never went back. I'm just the mountain man now. <laughs> so yeah, like the, the goal of the characters, like the locations that were created all have your, your you're asked to add something that can be of value there, something Mm -hmm. that is going to be dangerous to the players, the player characters, Mm -hmm. and something that the players are going to be a danger to. Mm -hmm. So you've got a reward, you've got a danger, and then you've got collateral. And as you, as you play this adventure out, anytime you do something that might endanger that collateral, whether that's, Oh, the, the ground is unstable or, the people here are quite persnickety and don't <laughs> don't like you know they're not going to have a good relationship with our settlement if we if we fuck around too much. Can we swear mm-hmm. on the show? I uh, yes, please. <laughs> I have the filthiest mouth. So, yeah. children, parents of children, and also children of children, beware. Children of parents. Ch- children of. Well, I think I meant children of children. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Technically, I don't know. Listen, I'm I'm flying by the seat of my pants here today. So, <laughs> so yeah the the reward is is going to be it's going to give you something to like look for whether that maybe that's oh these people know how to cook really good food and so we're here to try to get them to teach us how to cook really good food or take their cookbooks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Don't take their cookbooks. That's quite rude. <laughs> if they offer them. Right. <laughs> so those Flat. three things are, are there basically to structure what, what this looks like and to get these arbiters to have something to branch off of. Oh, you failed the dice roll. What was the danger listed? Yeah. Let's bring that in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a, a little bit of a position effect sort of thing, right? Because I always view 
uh, position effect from Blades in the Dark as a position is what the enemies can do to you, whereas effect is what you can do to the enemies, right? Or whatever the narrative is providing. So I, I really see a little bit of semblance with danger and reward kind of being that same sort of thing. Danger is what the environment can do to you. Reward is what you have to gain by endangering yourself, right? Yeah. So one one mechanic I kind of want to touch on a li- before we kind of come out of gameplay and and move to a little segment change here. So well, I want to get the downside, but take a little break for us. Um, I want to talk about the overloaded mood mechanic a little bit because I really like that you put both a soft and hard version of it. Soft being you know roll under the checkboxes whereas hard is when you hit that checkbox limit what was kind of your thinking behind an overloaded mood so this again is definitely inspired by the veil the veil has i think they're called mood spikes in that game where if you if you fill out the box completely if you act in a certain way six times then you spike in that mood and it's a whole there's a whole mechanical weight to it and so I, I I just enjoy that. I like checking off boxes on sheets at the very like at a very base level. It's fun to yeah. track things. Yes. <laughs> but I wanted it to be a little more dynamic. So yeah, there if you have a D eight if you have a D eight mood of feckless. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Then you have nine different boxes next to that. And so each time you act feckless, you check off a new box. Once you get half of those boxes full, so once you get past four, you have to start paying attention to the die that you're rolling. So the DA that you're rolling for feckless, if that comes under the current track, so if you've been feckless six times and you roll a five, well then you kind of overload and feckless. You've been spending like basically your entire adventure in a feckless mood. I always forget what feckless means and I just keep saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's uh, feckless. It means to be feckless. Come on. <laughs> lacking, lacking initiative or strength of character. Uh, yeah. I, I have a feeling for it that it's not necessarily a great one, but <laughs> so yeah, you, you kind of, you kind of overload in that. And that's, this is a way to represent the, like the stress of the adventure on your character. Like, you were asked to pick moods that your character feels whenever they are on adventures, and then we're going to look at what what happens when your character is feeling those moods too much. Like maybe just go home and rest if you're getting close. Like if you've just been if you've been fe- if you're not feckless at home, but whenever you go out and you're trying to get somebody's cookbook and you're behaving fecklessly. Like eventually that's going to take a toll on you because that's like a different – I don't know. There, it's a stressful thing to be on an adventure is I mm-hmm. guess what it's kind of driving at. So it's a little bit the veil, mood spikes, and a little bit blades in the dark stress. Mm-hmm. 
sense. Yeah. Did I? <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that one thing I think this episode is really shaping up to kind of be about a little bit is that I think when when people first start designing, and I have also fallen in this trap, we want to innovate. We want to make the new dice system. We want to make the new. Like, we want to. We want to be the blades in the dark hot thing that that comes to be because that's the thing that got us excited. And as with all things that we create as humans, humans are very bad at making up things. Oh, what we're really good thing, at, yeah. we cannot make up anything, but what we can do is combine stuff. And I think what this episode is really, I think a piece of what's really saying is that it's, it's okay to take ideas from other people and honestly, like one to one them. Sometimes you want to change some stuff and sometimes there's some licensing uh, issues involved in that potentially, but there's no shame in seeing something like, man, that is really fucking cool. I want to play more of that. I just want to play it in a different version. I was watching your the second episode of your YouTube series, which I'm going to put in the show notes below here, where you're kind of starting a new Zine Quest 2021 idea. But you mentioned, shit, what is it called? Dusk. A so- songs from the Dusk? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that what it's called? Yeah, Songs it's, from the Dusk. So Blades in the Dark traditionally is very like moody, London town, steampunk, everyone's backstabbing. And a lot of the hacks that have come from that have been all very grimdark interpretations of it, just in different genres, military fantasy, sci-fi. But what you what you said and what I also like about Songs from the Dusk is that it's a very like hope-inspired genre. It's about rebuilding. It's not about you know, really elaborating on the turmoils of existing as a character in a world under the forged in the dark system. I know that, and this is not to, you know, I don't want to shit on any hacks of blades in the dark (laughs) because I think there's certainly a place for all types of stories at all types of tables, but there's a, there was a person out there who said, you know what? I want to look at the bright side of the system. I want to see what the, what's bright stories can be told from a game like this. And, I think that when you look at other systems, other games that inspire you as a game designer, what do you like? What do you like that that isn't present right now in the game? If you want a Blades in the Dark that sings a little bit more about the heroics or about the bright side of things, make songs from the dusk. You know what I mean? Like make a game about that focuses more on the environment than fighting goblins. Make No Stone Unturned. You know what I mean? Like it's it part of the game design process, at least in my belief, is that you just have to add your want onto something and you've got a game. Yeah. Yeah. But I love I love the overloaded mood. I I really think that it's a great way to talk about because there's not really a, a conversation about like lethality in a game like this. You don't really talk about character death in here, at least not that not that I've read. And so I also think that the overloaded mood is a great way to establish risk and stakes to your character personally without saying like you're at risk for ending your character. Like I see that ending a character is a choice for the player, not not a choice made by the game, right? And I think that's right. really really beautiful. I think again it speaks to that that intimacy that you've provided for the game 
like a lot of I like that you're very what do I want to say? Lenient with downtime, which I also think think speaks to the to the feel of the game. I know that in Blades in the Dark, you know, it's all about spend your coin, spend your rep, make sure you have the resources to downtime. Did you piss off your vice purveyor? Like you're checking all <laughs> the you're checking against all these things. Where for you, you kind of make some assumptions of like, okay, these adventures are going to get banged up. Let's give them heals for free, right? Let's let's let them kind of manage their characters' mechanics, I guess to say, in a very easy way. And then what do they want to talk about spending their downtime actions doing, such as the reflection and stuff? So was that was that you know did I hit the nail on the head on the on the sense that? It was very much, you know, just kind of downtime, just kind of sit by the campfire and, and do your thing. Is that Was that the intention behind your style choice of downtime? Yeah, so there's there's a kind of a combination of – I sometimes do find Blades in the Dark downtime to just be a little bit like, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm all banged up and stressed. So instead of doing the cool stuff, I guess I'll just, <laughs> you know, indulge my voice, which you can get some good – Role playing out of out of the vice indulgence, but you don't get to make a long term project and stuff because you only get the two actions. Unless right, you spend right. coin, but I'm the type of person playing games that I don't like to spend anything. <laughs> I want it all the shots. Right. <laughs> it's nonsense, <laughs> but you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, the the way it is by default is you you get one action, but you can just collectively decide that you want to spend more downtime. But Mm -hmm. when you do that, at the very beginning of downtime and then for each action you all take, you're going to roll for a complication in one of the locations that you've explored. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about the collateral that is on the location that you're keeping track of whenever you're adventuring, what what you're interfering with. And then whenever you leave, you're going to roll – you're going to roll against tables. So this is similar to the – Entanglements? Are they entanglements mm-hmm. in blades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, okay, if if you didn't do much collateral, then maybe you roll and not much happens. Like, yeah, they're not happy with you. Yeah, that damage is there, but it doesn't get worse. Whereas if you left six to seven collateral, there's nothing good here. That's yeah. it's getting worse. They don't like <laughs> yeah. you, they're coming for you, whatever. Um so for each downtime action you take you just roll another one of those for a location on the map. So to emulate time passing in the world, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, and then you kind of, like you said, you get a little bit of free healing. You know, if you're only a little bit banged up, you can just recover it because you're just hanging out. And then you can upgrade your skills if we don't need to get into those mechanics. But if you've earned essentially a level up, then you can take it. Mm hmm, mm hmm. Yeah, and then you do downtime actions. So everybody does one and then another one and then until you're ready to go on another adventure. Yeah, again, I think this is one of those things where, like you just said, you know, Blades in the Dark can be very harsh and require you to really have some resources behind you to get done all the narrative things you want to get done. And I agree with you. I think for me, when I run games, I find it hard especially because people come from sort of like a D background when they play that they're just very uh, violent and aggressive and i don't mean that like 
they're bad people at the table, but they their characters are played to be like swashbuckling or very like fight first, ask questions later type characters. And often I'm dealing out harm, they're using their stress, they're pushing themselves, and then when they get the downtime, those two free actions are almost always either A, doubled up on healing and indulging in your vice, or they're shared of the two. And then you have to think about spending coin and rep to get the extra things. And, you know, if they're not playing the smart criminal game, I don't want to say anyone's playing a dumb version of Blades in the Dark by being, you know, assassins, because that's a that's a crew book. So play the assassins. <laughs> but if they're not kind of playing quote unquote, the game, they're really kind of put on the back step, especially as like beginning characters who don't have a lot to them. And you're just spending the whole game healing and stressing and fighting and healing and stressing and fighting until you have enough advances that say like, I have a little empire under me now. And that's, <laughs> there's a very low middle ground for that. Either like you switch it on or you don't have it. Right. So I really love the sort of like, you know what? I just want people to heal and then do the cool narrative stuff as well. Like I want to give them both. And I think that again, it's one of those things where I just want you, you wanted a different style of a game you have played. And thus that created your game, right? It's just a small, little decision where you're taking a different path off the road, but you're still watching all the other people enjoying their drive, right? Like that kind of thing or enjoying their walk. You're people watching the hack. Yeah. And it's good to like, I like downtime as a concept in blades and every other game that is, mm-hmm. has arrived in just because it's nice to just take that back step and mm-hmm. take a breather. You kind of did a lot of both, did a lot in the story, but then also a lot of creative work to mm. play the game proper. So it's nice to just relax a little bit and be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to reconnect with my sentiments. I I need to make it up to my mom for <laughs> don't bring <laughs> for back doing such this. a dangerous thing. Like, <laughs> look, I'm safe. I'm here. <laughs> Aw. Yeah, I love. So one of the specific downtimes is kind of de- dealing with the fallouts of your of your sentiments if you choose to use them for advantage dice, which I know we didn't touch super much on. But you can essentially use your sentiments, kind of offer them up to gain advantages on mood or aspect dice. And then during downtime, you kind of, you know, like he said, he, you have to deal with that stuff. You have to be like, you know what, I put my I did it even though my mom didn't want me to. And now my mom's relationship with me is at risk and I don't want that to stay true. So I want to do something about that. You know, I, I had to offer up the last shotgun shell I had, and now we don't really have a way to like defend ourselves. And I don't know if we've invented black powder in this world. So I have to deal with that, right? We have to figure out ways of dealing with the things that we sacrifice. It's not just an abundant resource that, we can constantly reuse over and over again. We have to manage it. And that's true of life as, as well. You know, we make choices that kind of start to stretch relationships with different things that we have before we have to come to a breaking point and address them. And then so beautiful, beautiful work so far, Adam, <laughs> truly. I, I, <laughs> I don't see anyone that shouldn't offer this game as a first player choice for sure. I know I've said that probably for the fifth time now, but <laughs> It has some really nice, easygoing things that don't say, like, okay, you now have to play, like, a blood-hungry, even a cleric 
in D&D, right? Like you, you don't have to just stop the undead. You have to deal with the people of your faith. You have to, you have to kind of test your own faith uh, a lot of the time, you know, speaking in a vacuum to the cleric. Uh, and then your book kind of moves into a classic agenda things, just talking about different principles of how to play the game well, or how to play a role-playing game period, which I think is standard for anyone making a game. I think you should, I think one of the biggest things anyone can read up on is different agendas and figuring out like what you do and do not like, because a lot of people are coming into being a GM blind and honestly don't know what they're doing. And I don't, I think that I don't, I don't want part of this show to be like the bash of D and D five E, but the, <laughs> the dungeon master's guide is a really poor book for teaching you how to run a game. I it is I, the first time I opened that thing, I was like, what? I know how to yeah. play this game. Why, why did I get this? this yeah. A lot of weird rules and no guide. It provides <laughs> nothing. Right. Oh, uh, it's fine. I don't want any of D and D five E Twitter to even touch my podcast. So <laughs> that's not true. There's some lovely people out there. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it can definitely be a cesspool of opinions. I mean, that's just Twitter. <laughs> also true. Also true. Um, but yeah, agenda and principles, I think are some of the coolest bits of power by the apocalypse games, which is mm-hmm. the first time in most often time I see that in in a game is in a pbta game and yeah it's just nice for the designer to be like here's so you know the rules but here's how i here's how you should play this game not should but here's what you should keep in mind i guess whenever you're playing and and Mm -hmm. if you use these principles as your guide then you'll get the most out of the mechanics i've provided absolutely absolutely 100 percent. yeah i don't know if that's just the game designer brain being like oh it's nice to hear that as yeah. when, I'm, when I'm reading a book or or what, but it's definitely nice to see that stuff. Yeah, so I, I think you make a good point about how like it's a conversation from the game designer. Like you're literally talking to Adam Bell when you read No Stone Unturned, right? Like you right. you're you're saying like, "Hey, I'm Adam. This is my game. This is a really great way to play it that I think will give you the most benefit at the table." And then you know the person running it can then have their own conjecture of like, okay, I can see the things that you're saying. And if they're a veteran, they have their own style of doing things. And if they're new, they're probably really appreciative. So amazing. And of course you can play the games however you want. You don't have to listen to me. I don't know what I'm Absolutely. talking about. But <laughs> if you wanted to listen to me, here it is. I think you have some really smart things to say for sure. So that is No Stone Unturned. This would be some transitionary music here that ba-da, does a little piano. Now it's just going to be your voice instead of that. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of the next segment here is is talking about design trends. And, you know, I think that one thing about being a game designer is being quote unquote well read. And what I mean by that is just having your pulse on the industry because it gives you opportunity to learn new things. So Adam, in your sort of sphere of tabletop, what is something that you either a think the game scene needs more of? And that can be that can be sort of anything, but I guess I speak more to a type of game or maybe something that creates a more 
accessible game or approachable game or just something about tr- traditional games that needs to be kicked to the curb or if not in your own sphere, your personal thoughts on sort of a design trend you would like to see emerge. Hmm. So I think one I, thing I would say, or one, one thing that I like to see happen more and more as somebody that came from board games is like a boxed, the boxed RPGs that are starting to happen a little bit more. Interesting. Those are good. And I have ideas for a few of those that I'm picking away at. But what I mean by that is like a game that you buy, it's a box. It's got Mm -hmm. all the bits that you need to play and Mm -hmm. you just bring it out. And I find those are like really easy to show up back when you had board game nights. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you can remember those days, you show up and you're like, here's this. It looks like a board game. It's not, but <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's easier like than a, showing up with a book. <laughs> so like games like Mouse Guard, right? Yeah, I think Mouse Guard has that. Although Mouse Guard is very much a kind of a bigger RPG, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But games in particular like Cobwebs by mm-hmm. Adam Vass, uh, World Champ Game Co. That just it's a box. You pull it out. It's got this nice um board and it's a one shot game so you just show up and you're like let's do this mm-hmm. games like for the queen i don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever played for the queen but that's no no it, i'm i'm budding i'm budding <laughs> yeah that's fair there's so many games it's hard to keep track but for the queen is a box that is just a deck of cards that are different mm-hmm. prompts and you just mm-hmm. slap the cards in the middle of the table the first 10 or so cards are the rules of the game that you read like around the table and then you draw a card, read the prompt, answer the prompt. And then by the end of it, you've got a really cool story. Mm -hmm. But that is far and away like the easiest game I've ever had to get somebody into. Cause I just show Mm -hmm. up and it's like, look at this. It's nice. I don't have it. I it's in the other room or I'd show it Mm -hmm. to you, but that won't help the listener. So (laughs) (laughs) sorry, listeners, you're going to have to imagine, please grab the box and give me a full, evocative description of the box <laughs> mouthfeel and all oh not mouthfeel it's too big <laughs> so yeah games like that there's a, there's a fair amount of them there are a couple on that were on kickstarter recently that i'm blanking on but basically anything that like i can grab and open and it's all there i like that kind of stuff and that awesome. poses interesting design both challenges and opportunities i think Mm-hmm. challenges in that like how do you make something that merits being in a box mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like that's not just a book right right like i can't i can't show up with no stun Untamed <laughs> as a box game because it's up it's a pen and paper role-playing game yeah but yeah. you can show up with cobwebs because that requires this play mat and mm-hmm, a bunch mm-hmm. of other cool stuff yeah yeah, there are probably other things I could come up with, but I don't know if you. No, is, is there good? anything? I know that's kind of personal. Do you see anything in your kind of sphere of influence that people have been like? You keep like seeing a ping on your radar. It's like, man, someone keeps talking about like this thing. If not, that's mm. okay too. I'm sure there is. I'm trying to think because I, I feel like the opposite of that is games that are like purely digital. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any examples at the top of my head. But games that are designed for online play. 
would be like the complete opposite of the box game, but also mm-hmm. a very thing, a, a thing that's definitely going to continue taking off, especially yeah. as itch as itch becomes more and more prevalent. And I think that uh, with, especially with a lot of industries, you know, the current state of, and this is speaking mainly to America, I don't know how other countries are doing when it comes to COVID, but you know, we're not really allowed to see a lot of people. I know that there are people out there who are still hanging with their families and they know they're very safe and, you know, their circles are very, very tight and small. And I'm sure there are people being very responsible out there. And there are also people not being responsible out there. Yeah, we're we're allowed to do that. We just absolutely shouldn't go hang out with a lot of people. The Um, problem is that we're allowed. But anyway, we don't have to get into that. But yeah, again, that's four (laughs) podcast episodes out of this one so far. So look for those in the future, people. But yeah, there's really uh, figuring out how to innovate into the online space and really making remote play super accessible. I mean, I can't imagine how, you know, we have that role application that's being worked on currently. Role 20 is probably seeing a surge in plays over the course of the last however many months. People are figuring out how to use Zoom and Discord and all sorts of things. There are games being designed around Discord. I know that, is it, I can't remember if it's Will or Adam. Will? Who made the Discord Ghosts game? both of them. Both of them. Oh, great. And I was (laughs) right and wrong all at the same time. But the, I, I really want to play that game. But, you know, a game that abuses the structure of a application that was not intended for that purpose out the gate. And I just think those are very beautiful innovations. So I definitely think warranting saying something about needing more online focused games that are not video games. Obviously, if anyone doesn't understand that that's the difference we're talking about here, that is the difference we're talking about. But role playing games that can be facilitated in online space. Uh, I think both of those are very, very interesting design trends. So thank you. Thank you for those. That kind of moves us along into, Adam, what are you currently working on? Hmm. Uh, A few things, I guess, simultaneously, because that's, I mean, who's working on one thing, right? Yeah, that's not how the human (laughs) brain works, actually. (laughs) Uh, But so like you had mentioned earlier, I am starting a new design that I'm like trying to film my process on YouTube. I'm not very far in that, so there's not much to talk about yet. So let's see. Would you want to hear about there's a social deduction RPG that I'm trying to make work or now let's talk about that one. That would, that's Yeah. Cool one. Among Us is hot right now. So let's go. <laughs> right. <laughs> So social deduction games have always been one of my favorite types of board games, which probably, yeah, you too. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I like to be the big brain sometimes. That's why yeah. I like them. <laughs> I, I feel like that was a precursor to me liking <laughs> RPGs because it's very much a, it's, they're basically improv games with info yeah. that you have to trick people about. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So I kind of, I started working on this maybe in April and then stopped and, I've been thinking about it on and off, but a game that has that feeling of kind of PVP lying to each other, (laughs) trying to suss out who is and who isn't on your team, but have a lot more role playing and have, so you still have to have a mechanical framework for that, I think Mm -hmm. in order Mm -hmm. for it to drive home. But 
add in a layer of, I don't know, having characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. I think about games like the resistance Avalon, if you've played that Mm-mm. or the resistance, they're two different there. It's essentially the same social deduction game. It's about going on quests, but mechanically and at the table, what going on quest boils down to is everybody that's on the quest is picking a card that says success or fail mm-hmm. and, and playing it. So I, it creates a great moment. That's one of my favorites, but it doesn't tell a story really. It's just mm-hmm. like, whoop. You put in the fail cards. So <laughs> we failed. There was a Whoopsie. There, was a, <laughs> there was a bad person on that mission. Um, there's so I, um go ahead. No, you got it. Oh, I was just gonna say there's something on my on my Facebook that kind of keeps uh, getting advertised to me. It's called Veiled Fate that looks to be like pushing into that role play direction. You're supposed to, if I remember correctly, you're supposed to. Well, this is pretty. You're playing like the patron of a god or something, and you're trying to create different temples or appease the gods in some way. And you're like having this conversation with other people who are trying to champion gods. And base, I think the the object of the social deduction game is to win the favor of the gods while tricking other people to favor the gods you want favored as well. And kind of like shifting those things around the board. That's my like very loose understanding of it. But I think it's something that might that I think kind of starts to push into a role play social deduction. I feel like uh, Werewolf also has a slight capability. Like you yeah. could, you could if you like really you wanted could. to wear the hats and be like, "Yes, I am the seer," and I, you know, you could kind of play that. But it do- certainly doesn't have the same sort of mechanical breadth that a. I don't want to say traditional, but tabletop RPG has. Yeah. Yeah. And like the goal of werewolf is not to tell a cool story. It's right to kill, to kill the dang werewolf. <laughs> so, so the, the, the role playing like that happens definitely happens more in werewolf than a lot of other games, but it does mm-hmm. fall by the wayside whenever you get towards the end. And it's like, all right, which one of you is it? Yeah. <laughs> Where were you on June 5th? So how I know that you said that it was a tough part trying to figure out how to insert the role play aspect to a game like that. What has there been any initial inspirations for that or some games that you think like, you know, maybe this clicks. I know I know that you said you haven't really settled on anything, but something that's been like there's something here. There's like a magnetism happening. Right. There's design space to be explored. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do have like a general overview of how i think it could work Mm -hmm. which i can i could go through yeah absolutely please Um, so i think and let me let me plumb the depths of my memory on this design because i probably have it written down somewhere but this is the the loose and fast section this is like the lightning (laughs) round the general idea of it is going to be that you're all like at the beginning of it you're like planning you're planning a heist or you're planning something Maybe, mm-hmm, maybe it's mm-hmm. a heist. So it's the you know the boring part, the blades in the dark skips. Mm-hmm. We're we're doing that mm-hmm. like the whole time. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> good pitch, right? I love the I love the look <laughs> in your eyes for just that. I I'm, what I'm about to say is about to blow your mind <laughs> and mine at the same time. <laughs> so I'm imagining. A system where everybody rolls a ton of dice, 
privately behind a little screen. So this is mm-hmm. probably going to be a box game because I got to mm-hmm. give you cool screens. Great. <laughs> and so then everybody's got these, these die faces that they can use. And then you're going through a deck as a table, you're going through a deck of like challenges that you're going to face mm-hmm. on this mission. So it's like, Oh, there's guards and it'll say like, Oh, the guards require maybe a one and a five to confront. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then you go through this deck and each one you pull up, it's like, Oh no, I, I can handle the guards because you're looking at your dice and you've mm-hmm. got, I've got the one I've got a five or I've got the one you've got the five. So like we can, the two of us, we can do the guards. Right. Interesting. And so you're not committing anything there. You're just saying, Oh, I can do this. I can do that. And after you go through that deck, and I imagine maybe there's a couple of heists through the game. I don't know. There's a lot of playtesting that would have to happen. Absolutely. See if this yeah, is yeah, any yeah. good. <laughs> you go into a night phase. So a lot of social deductions have that social deduction games have that phase where everybody closes their eyes. And then mm-hmm. I think you go you're gonna go one by one and just put forward the dice that you claimed Ooh. you were going to put forward. Interesting. And so, and so then once everybody opens their eyes, we're gonna see all of these dice that are in the middle. And then start assigning that, like, go through the deck again, but actually assign the dice and, like, tell the story. Uh huh. Interesting. But, but probably it'll come to a time where you don't have the die that you thought you were going to have. And that's where, like, the traitor bit comes in. Cause, like, yeah, oh, I'll put yeah. in a five for this, but you don't. And so then you're scrambling and looking at all the cards, like, okay, who said they would put in, like, where were the fives supposed to come from and which one of you didn't put it in? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I'm per I personally really like that. That sounds really really interesting. Yeah, I think there's, there's a um, fun game in there for sure. Absolutely, there's a, there might be something to steal from. There's a there's a kind of a board video game called Armello Aramello. You'll know you found it if you found furries on the cover. But it is essentially a board game where you're rolling dice you're rolling dice that there's different there's a deck of cards each have different types and things that you can get and barter and there's coins but the idea behind the game is that you are either a trying to defeat the king and be the next king or you win by invoking dark magics and being a loyal subject of the king. It's just like different win conditions stuff. But uh, I think there's some interesting combinations because they have like die faces, things that do different things depending on how many you roll. They have different like cards that affect those dice rolls or that dice rolls can affect those cards. So I just, and they have sort of like a playing board that you can maneuver around and have different environmental effect things. Mm. So it might be something interesting to, to, to map from potentially. It's just what you were talking about made me think of it. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've heard of that, but I haven't played it. I have a few mm-hmm. friends that I think have been playing that lately. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll hop in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other game that I, got some of that inspiration for is one called Fuji by Wolfgang Varsh. It's a fully co-op game, but you are rolling dice behind a screen and can't talk about them, mm-hmm. but like have to communicate about them somehow without ever talking. It's, it's pretty good, but I love the idea of rolling dice behind screens and not being able to talk about them. <laughs> it's just a good mechanic. <laughs> no, I, I really think a, a transposition of the, you know, it's like you're playing a, a game of spades or hearts at the table, right? Like, that's kind of what it feels like to me. And then the the flip on that is the social deduction piece, the 
no one is on a team, but everyone's on a team right. sort of lying thing. I think that's really interesting. And even with what you, I, I mean, I understand that for you, there's probably a lot more mechanical breadth you want to give to it, but it sounds like a really like solid idea that has a really good intent by, behind it. I think it's really cool. I definitely think it's something worth uh, pursuing and that I myself would love to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's yet another in a – I have a problem with coming up with a cool idea that mm-hmm. I think will be difficult to execute really well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is cool because then I get to have that challenge. It's Half of the fun of game design is the challenge of overcoming – and, mm-hmm. and delivering on the promise you made. So like that pitch, I agree, sounds very cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but how do I then deliver on that? Right. Know, we'll right. see. Perhaps we'll see. Yeah. Coming to yeah. Kickstarter in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. Yeah, so just just as a sum up for, for this particular section, you know, there, there are always ideas, but they're going to need some time to be worked out. Games don't happen overnight, people. They don't happen in a week. There's, I think, what was it? I was watched. I was listening to something, an interview with Strauss, who made Band of Blades, and talked about how like seventy percent of the game design process is playtesting and just iterating over and over and over again until you find something that sticks or works. And that's going to be true. There's going to be a lot of labor of love. So you know, really thank your play testers for people that already have games out that were willing to say, yeah, I'll do it for free because playtesting is a job, especially when you want people to give honest and well thought out critique is, is really important. It can be really valuable for the game design process and not everybody always has access to that. So last Although, little bit, go ahead. I was going to say it is possible to make a game in a week and not play test it. Also true. I, also, true. I don't have. I don't think I have those skills because I have probably too much of a maximalist approach at first. Mm-hmm. But Same. if you know, if you know your stuff, you could definitely crank Pump out a out game again. And, and know that it'll work and do the thing that you want to. So that's something to aspire to. Listener. Yeah, there's a there's some members of the brain trust that I want to get on here and you know pick their brains about how, man, how do you just keep yeah. like diving in over <laughs> and over again and just come out at the end of the month with something that just mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> yeah. It's couldn't be me, but I'm glad that it's somebody. Yeah. My last little bit here for the show is kind of a TLDR design tip. So I'm going to make a little dice roll here. I'm going to ASMR this. I'm going to put it right next to the microphone. There are my notes. All right. Adam, whatever you think is possible, would you give a little design tip under the prompt of community? Just whatever you, whatever comes to mind off of that. It doesn't have to be anything like profound. Just something because I think a lot of people come into game design just thinking about the game, but it's also about networking and collaborating and marketing and publishing. So I think that there are a lot of extra pieces uh, to the puzzle that kind of don't seem quite into focus for starting game designers, especially for myself. You know, I'm just now touching on the networking stuff with the brain trust and meeting some really cool people, including yourself. So uh, do you have like a little design tip 
that kind of hits the prompt of community? Yeah, I think maybe don't be, let's see, community. Hmm. <laughs> it's okay. Let it marinate. I know out. it's a big question. This isn't like a strong podcast question. It may not stay, but you're the test subject. So, <laughs> No, it's good. It's making me think of, st- I have, there are conflicting ideas happening that mm-hmm. are making it hard to answer because I start saying one and then the other one butts its way in. So I think the first one is to try not to be intimidated by what you may or may not perceive as the game design community Mm -hmm. because it doesn't exist. It many design communities exist and seem to coalesce into one big one, maybe depending on where you look, but like you can make a game without really being on Twitter. (laughs) 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 <laughs> i think that's the tip is that the tip you can make- <laughs> oh shit but it is good it's definitely good to to find people that or, or to find somebody at least that you can talk to about your ideas and like mm-hmm. throw them at that person and or people and even if they don't respond like i credit my partner on a lot of my games, all of my games, because every time I'm coming up with a game, I just throw them like, Hey, how's this sound? And a lot of the times I get like good feedback, but also just as often I just get like, Oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just, <laughs> you know, not, <laughs> but it's good to just talk to somebody. So yeah, find that. Well, that is a terrible tip. No, I think, no, 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 no. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's good. Be. There's there's something certainly about like there is an exhaustive energy when it comes to thinking in a vacuum by mm-hmm. yourself. You don't you don't you're constantly coming up at the end of a, of a personal conversation of like is that a good idea? I don't know if that's a good idea and at least for me right. that's what I wrestle with is like am I am I saying something that like just does not make sense because it makes sense to me but does it and having someone that can kind of like soundboard you and be like you know that's maybe not a great idea or maybe maybe think of it this way or that is a good idea right like there's so many different spectrums of how someone else can or throw uh, inspirations your way that you may have never thought of like the you know like you like your idea for the social deduction game is like oh it makes me think of this right I don't know if that would have touched base for you, right? Like, I don't know if you would have put that game in that place, or at least with those mechanics. So this is speaking to our Armella, which I still don't think I pronounced right, but sounds right. Uh, sounds about right. But <laughs> I definitely think there's a, a really important piece of, you know, saying hello to people online or in person that is, that are also passionate about, what you're passionate about. Those communities exist. There's a whole discord dedicated solely to the forge in the dark system. I am a part of it. Those people really love it. You know what I mean? There are, mm. there are people out there who love D and D there are people out there who love powered by the apocalypse. that are just out there and want to just keep word vomiting about, about it until they turn blue in the face. <laughs> so there's someone out there who's probably had similar thoughts to you of like, man, I would love to see a hopeful Blades in the Dark. I would love to see an adventure exploration game that talks more about the campfire intimacies than about slaying goblins, right? So 
But you're never going to yeah. find those people if you don't reach out. So don't be scared, as, as Adam has said. Right. But also don't feel pressured to because maybe you just want to sure. plug away at Google Docs. That's the two competing tips that were in my book. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, don't don't feel pressured to reach out, but also it's there's not some game design singularity that's impossible to penetrate. You can find somebody. Yeah. Some group. It's, it's definitely a, a sliding scale for sure, depending mm-hmm. on the person. And it's also a balance. Like you don't need to not every person is going to be at your beck and call 24 seven to hear your no, idea. Yeah. So listening while to you fi- labor. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just as, it's just as hard as thinking them up yourself. Like you don't super understand where the person's coming from all the time. So yeah, I guess both of those are one tip is like, be involved to some extent, but only to the extent that you feel comfortable and that the other person that you're sharing with feels comfortable as well. And find multiple friends. You know what I mean? Some people are going to listen to different ideas better and some people are going to listen to more or less ideas coming from you. So we are a social creature and we need to be social, but we only have so much battery energy to spend on the social. It's different for everyone. Adam, I want to just wrap you in a hug with how thankful (laughs) I am about you being here on this first episode, which I hope to have more guests for. I have people lined up. I have 13 names from the Bane Trust. Yeah, I've got the (laughs) list. Um, Adam, where can people find you to chat with you if they want to reach out because of our community tip? And also where can they find your games, which will be in the show notes, people. So you can go to adamebell.games for the games, and then you can go to, I guess I'm on Twitter, at adamebell. I don't often tweet, <laughs> but I will see it eventually if you reach out to me there, and feel free to, of course. Yeah, and then look up, I think you mentioned it would be in the show notes, but if you just search Google, YouTube, wow, I'm 90 years old. If you search on YouTube for – it should be – I bet if it, it'll come up for Adam Bell designing. Yes, it does. You can find that series that we talked about that hopefully will continue. I mm. am not making any commitments to myself on how many of those videos I'm going to make. I'm going to keep doing them until it's not fun. Yep, yep. As with all things. Yeah. it's If it's a hobby, don't uh, let it burn you out because then it mm-hmm. won't be your hobby anymore. It'll be a hate. It'll be a wound. <laughs> yeah. Again, Adam, thank you so much. Everyone at home, this has been Draw Your Dice with Adam Bell. Say bye yeah. to the people, Adam. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Listen to the next episode <laughs> that comes out. <laughs> thank you. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Adam and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Adam or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time.